Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 7. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. In our study of the Trinity, we've looked so far at the Lagos Christology of the early Greek apologists, and then at modalism. And now we come to the subject of Arianism. In the year 319, a presbyter of the Church of Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, began to propagate his doctrine that the Son is not of the same substance as the Father. You remember that according to Tertullian and other church fathers who opposed um, the, uh, those who denied the full deity of Christ, that Christ is of the same substance or essence as the Father, and therefore fully divine. Arius denied that Christ is the same substance as the Father. Rather, he said that Christ had been created by the Father before the beginning of the world. And this episode marked now the great Trinitarian controversy that would occupy the church until the end of the century and give us the Nicene Creed and the Constantinopolitan creeds as a result. Now, you'll remember that Tertullian thought that the Logos was begotten by God the Father at the beginning of creation. By contrast, Alexandrian theologians like Oregon um, held that the begetting of the Son, or the Logos from the Father, did not have a beginning. Rather, it was an eternal begetting that had always taken place. And Arius thought that the reason that the Orthodox theologians were so opposed to his view um, that the Son had a beginning was because he affirmed that the Son did not exist eternally. In his letter to Eusebius of Nicomedia, he affirmed, and I quote, the Son has a beginning, but God is without beginning. And he thought this is why the Orthodox theologians were so opposed to him, because he affirmed that the Son had a beginning. But that wasn't correct. Uh, Tertullian himself thought that the Logos uh, was begotten at a certain point in time uh, prior to the creation of the world. What the theologians objected to about Arius's view wasn't so much that the Son had a beginning. What they objected to was that this beginning was not a begetting, but it was in fact a creation, and that the Son was therefore a creature. Uh, Arius denied that the Logos even pre-existed imminently within the Father prior to the creation of the world. There wasn't even an imminent Logos or um, word or reason within God prior to the creation of the world. So that the beginning of the Logos was not from the substance of the Father. The Father created the Logos out of nothing. He created the Son, and therefore the Son was a creature. And this is what the Orthodox theologians really found offensive. 
Athanasius, who became the bishop of Alexandria and was a champion of uh, Nicene Orthodoxy, protested that on Arius's view, God, the Father, existing without the Son, lacked even his word and his wisdom. He didn't have those imminent qualities within him, and this is blasphemous. This is from his orations against the Arians. He says, on Arius's view, the Son is, and I quote, a creature and a work not proper to the Father's essence, end quote. And this was simply blasphemy to affirm that the Son is a work and a creature, not belonging to the essence of the Father. So in the year uh, 325, the Council of Antioch condemned Arius's views. They condemned anybody who says that the Son is a creature or that the Son is originated or created or made or not truly an offspring, that is, someone who is begotten, not made. Um, and they condemned anyone who said that at one time the Son did not exist. And later in that same year, 325, the Emperor Constantine convened an ecumenical council at Nicaea. That is to say, this was not a local council. This was a universal council that drew bishops from all across the Roman Empire to convene at Nicaea and pronounce on this doctrine uh, of, of Arius. Now, the Council of Nicaea then propagated the creedal formulation of Trinitarian belief in the Nicene Creed. And it's worth mentioning that the Arians who were represented at the Council were very few. There were probably only six Arian bishops present at the council. There were 30 bishops who were squarely in Athanasius's camp, in the Orthodox camp. The vast majority belonged to this sort of confused center camp, which had around 200 uh, bishops in it, and they didn't know what was going on. They, they couldn't understand this uh, debate. And then there were the semi-Arians, uh, of whom we'll speak later, probably around 70 to 90 of the bishops were in this sort of semi-Aryan camp. And what they wanted to say was, the son isn't the same substance as the father, but he's similar in substance to the father, sort of quasi-divine, as it were. And the Athanasian camp uh, carried the day uh, and persuaded the uh, vast majority uh, of the bishops then to condemn Arianism and to propagate the uh, statement of the Trinity that we confess today. And on your handout you'll find a copy of this creedal statement. And let's read through this and then we'll comment on it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, 
That is, from the substance of the Father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of one substance with the Father. Through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth. Who, because of us men, and because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate, becoming man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. So we believe in one God the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, all three members of the Trinity. And then there are affixed to the creed these condemnations of Arian propositions. But as for those who say, there was once when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is from a different hypostasis. We'll say something about that later. From a different hypostasis or substance, or is created, or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic Church anathematizes. So these Arian propositions are condemned in this suffix uh, to the creed. Now, several features of this statement deserve comment. Number one, notice that the Son, and I think by implication the Holy Spirit, is declared to be of the same substance as the Father. And the Greek word for this is homoousios. Homo, the word for same. Ousios, from the word for substance. So the Father and the Son, and I think by implication the Holy Spirit, are declared to be of the same substance. That is to say, they are of the same essence. They have the same divine nature. This is to say that the Son and the Father both exemplify the divine nature. And therefore the Son cannot be a creature, as Arius claimed. Arius wanted to say that the Son has a different nature, heterousios, from the Father. Hetero meaning different than, as in the word uh, heterosexual, opposite sex. Heterousios, a different substance, whereas the Orthodox affirm that is the same substance, the same essence. Now I mentioned the semi-Aryans who were present at the council. They were championing the word homoiousios to describe the relation of the Father and the Son, meaning that they were similar in essence. They feared that by saying they were the same substance this would imply modalism, that there wasn't a diversity of persons in the Godhead. And so they wanted to say he's not of a different essence or substance, but he's of a similar substance. And so there was a, a world of difference that lay in this single iota 
this single iota that distinguished homoousios from homoousios. On homoousios, the Son is fully divine. He is God. On homoousios, he isn't divine. He doesn't have the divine essence. He is simply similar to the Father. And therefore, just as much as the Arians, uh, they affirm that the Son is in fact a creature and a work, which was blasphemy. All right. Second point. Notice that the Son is declared to be begotten, not made. The creed says that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. This is the vestige of the old Lagos Christology of the Greek apologists, uh, which held that the Lagos is begotten in his divine nature from the Father, but not created. And notice that this is said with respect not to Christ's human nature, but with respect to his divine nature. In his very divinity, he is begotten from the Father. And therefore, just as uh, products of natural uh, generation which are begotten share the same nature as their parents, cats beget cats, dogs beget dogs, people beget people. So the Son and the Father share the same divine nature because the Son is begotten from the Father, not created by the Father. The Nicene statement is based upon a draft of a creed that was proposed by Eusebius of Caesarea. Now this isn't Eusebius of Nicomedia to whom Arius wrote that I quoted before. This Eusebius is from the coastal town in Israel called Caesarea. And you can still visit the uh, ruins of this town today on a trip to Israel uh, and, and see the ruins of this great port city of Caesarea Maritima there on the coast of the Mediterranean. And this is where Eusebius of Caesarea flourished and worked. And in his initial draft of the creed, he used the word logos instead of son. So whenever you see the word son in the Nicene Creed, in Eusebius's draft, he was using the word logos. The logos is declared to be begotten of the Father before all ages. And that's, as I say, the legacy of this old logos Christology of the Greek apologists. Notice similarly in the uh, condemnations which are affixed to the end of the Nicene Creed, they reject the view that this begetting had a beginning. The, the begetting is eternal. They say that they condemn those who say there was when he was not, uh, or before being born he was not. They anathematize anyone who says that this begetting of the Son or the Logos in his divine nature is not eternal but had a beginning. Athanasius in his uh, treatise Four Discourses Against the Arians uh, uses a very subtle and interesting wordplay to differentiate between the Father and the Son in this regard. It's really a, a pun. He says that the Father and the Son are both ah genetas. 
Agenitas means uncreated or unoriginated. It never came into being. This is something that never came into being. And he says that the Father and the Son are both agenitas. By contrast, he says that only the Father is agenitas with two ends. This is a different word, and this means unbegotten. With two ends, only the Father is agenitas, unbegotten. The Son is, is genitas, with two ends. He is begotten. So just as there was a world of difference with that single iota between homoousios and homoousios, so there's a world of difference between agenitas with a single n, or in the Greek a nu, and agenitas with a double n, or double nu. The Father and the Son are both agenitas in the sense of uncreated, never had a time when they came into being, but only the Father is unbegotten in the sense of agenitas. The Son is genitas, or begotten, from the Father. Any questions about that terminology? Dr. Craig, the, the examples you gave um, of uh, a child being begotten from yes. their parents implies a precedence. Uh, in other words, the parents were there and then the child was there. Is, is, uh, and personally, I struggle with the word begotten, what it actually means. Um, is what you're saying that uh, God was there and uh, Christ came from God being a precedence? Or, uh, and how do you tie that to 1 John, which is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word yes. was God? Okay, good question. Yes, there is a precedence here. Get that word out here so that we know what we're talking about. There is a precedence here, but it's not chronological. It's not a temporal precedence. The son derives from the father. It's a, it's a, a precedence of derivation. The father doesn't derive from anyone. He doesn't derive from the son. But the son on this view does derive from the father. The father uh, precedes the son, not in a temporal or chronological sense, but in the sense that he's underivative whereas the son is derivative. And the examples that the fathers often use uh, that I've alluded to before would be things like the relationship between the son and its rays. The son can never exist without its rays. It's always emanating its sunlight. But clearly, the son doesn't derive from its rays. The rays derive from the son. So if the Son has existed from eternity, this is S-U-N, in, in case that's not clear, if the Son has existed from eternity, the Sun rays, the Sun beams, will also exist from eternity. So even though they're derivative, they have no beginning chronologically. I guess that's what I'm struggling with a little bit, is, the, is, is uh, a, something being derived from something by its very definition means that there is a, 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 a time aspect to it. Well, or, what about the illustration of the sun so, and its rays? Yeah. I mean, to so, me, so that to seems like that a one, good illustration. They're, they're, uh, I mean, what actually produces the sun rays is obviously the, the chemical reaction that's happening or the, uh, the, in, in the sun. So there is a 
without that chemical reaction happening, there is no subsequent ray that happens. So, so there is a sequence even in that example that you give. Well, you're importing modern science into the example, yeah, sure, uh, which sure. of course they didn't have. They didn't know about nuclear fusion or anything of that sort. So right. the, the idea there, though, I think on a, on a popular level, seems to be pretty clear that you can have something that is derivative from something else Tied without together, any sort of chronological precedence. Why, 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 if there is a kind of ontological dependence, does that need to have a chronological beginning? Okay. I, I don't see why it would. Sure. Okay. Now, I think there was a comment down here in the front from Jim. I just had a question. Who was it that used the terminologies of Agenthalus? That was Athanasius. Athanasius. Again, actually, it's, it's fairly universal among the Orthodox theologians, this distinction between Agenetas, meaning uncreated, and Agenetas, meaning unbegotten. But you can find it especially in Athanasius. Yes, Taiwan. The sun... Christ existed with God, but for man's sake, for the sake of man, become a tangible entity. Well, I think that is the idea. The beginning here is not just the beginning of humanity. It's the beginning of the whole world. Um, John thinks that the whole cosmos came into being through the logos. The world was made through the logos. So in the beginning was just God and his word and then the world was created through the Lagos. But as a result of the speculations of these early Greek apologists, they thought of the Lagos as somehow derivative from God the Father. And I agree, and for functional purpose, functional for the pur purpose of yeah. ten like physical men and their accountability. I understand the distinction. And I'm not committing myself to this view. I'm just explaining the view. What Taiwan is suggesting is maybe there isn't a kind of ontological derivation of the Son from the Father. Maybe we shouldn't introduce that into the Godhead. Maybe they're just co-eternal, co-equal. But there's a sort of functional submission of the Son to the Father for the sake of the plan of salvation. And there were some church fathers who held to a view uh, like that, but that wasn't the majority view. The majority view, because of this influence of these Greek apologists, was that there is this kind of derivation within the Godhead, the Son deriving from the Father, and then, I mean, further, we haven't talked about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit being derivative as well, deriving from the Father and the Son. Yes, over here. The way I see this is that Jesus always imitates God the Father, right? Uh -huh. um, and that makes sense to me to where Jesus always says, God's will or Father's will, not mine. But when it's saying that it, he's imitating, it sounds like, God the Father would be the greater person of the three. And that doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's a tension, I think, within orthodoxy that I imagine some of the church fathers would want to affirm, that the Father is greater than the Son in the sense that the Father is not only agenitas, uncreated, but he's also unbegotten, 
Whereas the son has a kind of derivative being. Uh, the father is the fount of the son and is therefore the greatest of all. Someone asked the other day about the verse where Jesus says the father is greater than I. Well, I think for the Orthodox party at Nicaea, they wouldn't have any trouble with a statement like that because they would see the, the son as begotten from the father. But this isn't a creation. That's the important thing to keep firmly in mind. They are both God in the same way as I say that puppies are dogs just as much as their parents or kittens are feline just as much as they, the cats who give birth to them. They share the same nature, but the son is begotten from the father. All right, let's go on to the third point that I wanted to make today about this statement. Notice the condemnation at the end of those who say that Christ is a different hypostasis or substance from the Father. This clause occasioned great confusion and controversy within the early church. Hypostasis is a Greek word which is etymologically similar to and therefore synonymous with the Latin word substantia or substance. And you can see that etymologically. Hupo means under, like a hypodermic needle. It goes under the skin, right? Or hypothermia, your temperature goes down. Hypo, hupo means under. It means the same thing as in Latin that sub means, like a submarine goes under the water. So in Latin, sub, and it means the same thing as hupo in Greek, stasis and stantia are the Greek and the Latin words respectively for standing under something. So a hypostasis is something that stands under something. Uh, a substance, substantia, is something that stands under something in the sense that the, these are property bearers. They exist in themselves. Properties exist in these substances, and they're, they're possessed by these substances. But a hypostasis and a, and a substance would seem to be the same meaning. These two words just seem to be the Greek and the Latin of the same thing. And although the Nicene Creed is drafted in Greek, the meaning of its terms is Latin. It's in Greek, but they take hypostasis to mean the same thing as substantia. And therefore, they condemn those who say that there is a plurality of hypostases in God. There's only one substance in God, right? God is one substance. And so they condemn anyone who says that there is more than one hypostasis or usia, substance, in God. Now the problem is, for native Greek-speaking theologians from the eastern part of the Roman Empire, where Greek was the language, not Latin, they didn't take hypostasis to be a synonym of substantia. For them, a hypostasis just meant an individual, a concrete individual, a bearer of properties. So, for example, Gregory of Nyssa 
one of the great Greek church fathers, explains that a hypostasis, and I quote here, is what subsists and is specially and peculiarly indicated by a name. For example, Paul. Paul is the name of a hypostasis, an individual. And this individual uh, is in contrast to usia in Greek, which is the essence of something. So they would say that Paul and Jim and Cindy all have the same usia. They all have the same essence, but they are different hypostases, different individuals exemplifying that essence or having that nature. And therefore, to say that there are not distinct hypostases in God is to endorse modalism. It's to say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all the same individual. Uh, and that was obviously wrong. Clearly, there are distinct hypostases in the Trinity because they have different properties. For example, only the Father has the property of being unbegotten, whereas the Son has the property of being begotten. So there are different individuals in the Trinity. They have different properties. And so to these Eastern theologians, the statement of the Nicene Creed that condemns those who say that the Son is a different hypostasis from the Father sounded like modalism, that they were all the same person. And this led to enormous confusion and debate. Well, finally, after decades of debate, the confusion was finally cleared up at the Council of Alexandria in 362. And at that council, they affirmed the doctrine of homoousios, there is one substance, one essence in God, but they allowed that there are three different divine hypostases. So they recognized the Greek understanding of what a hypostasis is. It's not a synonym to substance. Rather, a hypostasis is an individual, a concrete individual, who bears or exemplifies a nature. So eventually, the church came to recognize that in God, there's one substance with three hypostases, three individuals. And so the Nicene Creed that we affirm today is not the same one as the original that condemned those who say there are more than one hypostases. Um, the one that we affirmed that it was, was promulgated later uh, affirms that there are uh, a plurality of hypostases. Now, any question about that controversy that rent the church and how it was resolved? Charmaine. How do you reconcile the Old Testament with the plurality of the creation in the words that are in Hebrew? where God and the Father and the Son were all there at the creation. Yeah. You know, there's words that are used, the plural form yes. of in Hebrew, um, in yes, the Old and Testament. Yes, even the Spirit is mentioned right. in Genesis chapter 1, I think verse 2, where it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the right. waters. So the they would say that the, yes. the Son is implicitly involved in the work of creation, even if in the Old Covenant he's not explicitly mentioned. Because, after all, this hadn't been fully revealed. They, they believed that God's 
full revelation took time until Christ. And so in the Old Testament, you have statements about God that don't differentiate clearly the members of the Trinity. All right, well, with that, we come to the end of our time. But what we'll want to do next time is examine more closely exactly what these, these hypostases were that were affirmed to be in the Godhead. There's one God, one substance, and then there's these three hypostases. What are those? That's what we'll look at next time. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the time together to think about the giants who have gone before us and on whose shoulders we stand. And we pray, Lord, as we go into this week, that you would sustain us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship and serve you with whole hearts and willing minds. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.